Well, hey, good morning, church family. Boy, you may think it was cold, you know, coming out this morning, but um, I was in a wedding here last night on this stage, and uh, the reception, we went to Ellis Ranch, which is just kind of going west on Highway 34 right before you get to the foothills. And uh, as part of the wedding party, I, had, uh, I was instructed to go to the bunkhouse uh, and wait for our, our grand entrance, you know, into the reception. The bunkhouse at Ellis Ranch has no heat, okay? No heat. So we were in there for, I was in there for probably about 45 minutes, no heat, and then it gets better. Then we were instructed, we're going to do pictures outside with no coats. What? <laughs> They marched us out through, trudged through the snow up into the wilderness area somewhere for, at, it, was, it was at least 30 minutes, if not longer. No coats. I mean, I was blue. I, my teeth were chattering. I thought I was dying. <laughs> Hypothermia was setting in. I'm like, I'm done. This is it. I, come, come Lord Jesus, you know. So I'm still thawing out this morning. If I'm a little shaky this morning, it's not the coffee, it's the cold. So, as Travis mentioned, um, we are embarking on a, a new series on the book of Galatians, and uh, so I don't forget, if you are live streaming, which I'm guessing a number of people are this morning, uh, we are going to be sharing communion at the end of this service, so if you'd like to prepare for that, we invite you to uh, participate. But uh, Galatians is a remarkable book, and it's great just on the heels of our six-month series on the law contains a lot of similar themes, themes, but um, it's, it's a striking book for a number of reasons, and one that Travis mentioned is it, it is just saturated with the gospel, which is awesome. But second, it's the only one of Paul's epistles addressed to churches in more than one city. Here's a map showing the region of Galatia, kind of the northeast part of the Mediterranean, and Galatia was in the area of modern-day Turkey. Paul founded several churches in the southern part of that region, cities of Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby. And it was probably one of Paul's very first letters that he wrote, written a mere 16 or 17 years after the death of Christ. A third way that Galatians is striking is not so much for what it contains, but for what it doesn't. Galatians is the only epistle that Paul wrote that does not contain any commendation or, or praise for its readers. And that's unusual because finding something to praise a church for was something that Paul always did. It was the first thing he always did whenever he wrote, but not here. I don't think it was because they were any worse than any of the other churches that Paul wrote to. I think it was because of the urgency that Paul felt to address and defend the essential doctrine of justification, which just means our right standing before God. And apparently, uh, these churches were abandoning that. You know, today, upwards of 40 million Americans have stopped going to church. The percentage of people who attend church has dropped to all-time lows. It's below 50% now. And the percentage of Americans who have no religious uh, identification at all has reached an all-time high. 
So I can't think of any better way to kick off the new year than to just look into the gospel. It's the main reason why we come here on Sunday morning. It's, it's the truth and integrity of the gospel. That is the wellspring and foundation of all that we do. So how about we pray? Let's ask God to bless our morning, bless this book as we open up Galatians. Father, we're, we're thankful for the promise of a new year. And we thank you that because of your grace, really every day is a new beginning. All our sins are gone. And you have nothing but love and kindness, goodness and mercy for us this coming year. We believe that. Thanks that you have thoroughly and forever qualified us to share in every single blessing through the merits of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would bless our study of this book, deepen our convictions, and Lord, make us, make us a people, a church of people in 2024 who are more passionate than ever before about you and about your gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, years ago, many years ago, I took a, a course called a New Testament survey, and the, the professor I had, he, he condensed every book of the New Testament down to just one word, one key word for each book. Do you know what word he chose for the book of Galatians? If you think about it long enough, you might come up with it. It's the word freedom. Freedom. You got to say it like Braveheart, you know? Freedom! Our professor chose that word because Galatians 5.1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Awesome verse. He's freed us in so many ways. He's freed us from our spiritual darkness and ignorance. He's freed us from all our guilt and shame. He's freed us from our fear of death. And he's freed us from our slavery to sin. But... It was not to free non-Christians from their slavery to sin. Galatians was actually written to free Christians from their slavery to legalistic Christianity. Okay? That's one of the main themes of this book. And to, to free us from all the competing false gospels that are out there, both in the first century as well as today. So you're going to find our passage today on page 972 in the Bibles in front of you, but it's short enough, I'm just going to have it up on the screen as well, okay? So let's read this passage together, and we'll talk about it. <clears throat> Galatians 1, 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead... And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. All right. So in verses 1 to 3, Paul introduces himself. He gives his credentials and just a common greeting. The Greek word for apostle here that he uses is apostolos. It just simply means one who is sent. One who is sent. And we'll get into this more next week, but Paul's commissioning and his authority here, it came not from any human agency, but directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, even though Jesus was was dead, right? Paul encountered him on the road to Damascus. Now, anybody can make that claim of this authority, but Paul backed it up. He had credentials, just as he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Now, the primary purpose for signs and wonders and mighty works is not just to wow people. It's not to heal people or fix problems or accomplish good, but rather to authenticate truth. And he says in verse 4 that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Why? To deliver us from the present evil age. Now, the Bible frequently talks about two distinct ages. There's this age and then the age to come. This age and the age to come. The age to come is always identified as the time after Jesus' second coming. It's characterized by universal peace and righteousness and joy that lasts forever. It's a place where there is zero sin. But this present age, Paul describes as evil. And God's purpose in giving himself for our sins, he says, was to deliver us out of this present evil age. But Paul doesn't mean the the physical removal of us from this world, though that will eventually happen. The Greek word deliver or rescue here, it means to rescue from the power of something, okay? That is the power of evil and the values of this present evil world system. We see this same principle in 2 Peter 1.4 says, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You see, he's he's talking, this this is past tense, having escaped. He's talking about live Christians who have already escaped this corrupt world. They're still physically in the world, but they are not of it. You see, our salvation, practically speaking, is in stages. You may have heard this. I may have shared this before, but God has delivered us from the penalty of sin, 
past tense. God is delivering us from the power of sin, present tense, and God will deliver us from the presence of sin, future tense. So if you're a Christian and you haven't died yet, those first two lines apply to you. And when we die or the Lord returns, that's when we'll experience the third one. Hallelujah. It's going to be great. Well, immediately after this short introduction, Paul expresses great astonishment. Not only is he surprised, but he is upset. By turning to a different gospel, Paul is flat out saying that the Galatians are deserting God himself. They're deserting him. And as we'll see as we go throughout the book, the problem was the result of certain people teaching that Gentiles, that is non-Jews, who became Christians, now had to start obeying things from the law of Moses. Things like dietary laws, circumcision, and other ceremonial laws. And I think it's really interesting how in verse 7, Paul doesn't say that these false teachers are denying the gospel or destroying the gospel. He says they're distorting it. They're distorting it. In other words, they're starting with the true gospel, but then they're just tweaking it a little bit. Saints, the worst and most dangerous lies that are ever propagated on this earth are not the blatant, bold-faced heresies that, you know, might first come to our minds. The worst lies out there are the ones that are 99.9% true and 0.1% error, okay? It's kind of like the, if you heard about years ago, cult leader Jim Jones, he, he put strychnine, um, using strychnine, he poisoned and killed 99 or 900 of his followers, It just took a tiny amount of poison mixed with a whole lot of tasty Kool-Aid. And some of the worst cults in the world sound very Christian, at least at face value. Everything they say may sound orthodox or on target. But if you dig deep enough, that, that tiny bit of falsehood is like an enemy hidden inside a Trojan horse. Once inside the castle, it comes out and kills you. Oh, that's not a Trojan. That's the Trojan rabbit. Here's the Trojan horse. Okay? Well, after his introduction, Paul begins his letter by reiterating the gospel message. That makes sense, right? He wants to make it crystal clear. How does he reiterate that? Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Paul begins his letter by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. So God's grace through the substitutionary death of Jesus is what brings peace with God. It's at the core of what makes Christianity different from every other world religion. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. 
For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few are those who find it. It's a familiar verse. What is it though that makes the entrance to all other religions so wide and so easy and so attractive and makes the entrance to Christianity so narrow, so hard and so elusive? We know that every man-made religion employs human effort in order to be saved. While in Christianity, God does all the work and we contribute nothing. So think about it. It seems like Jesus had it backward in these verses, right? Man-made religion should be hard because it requi- it's the one that requires all the effort on our part. While Christianity should be easy because it requires no effort on our part. But you see, the difficulty is not in the effort required. The problem is human nature. False gospels abound because they cater to the very thing that fallen human nature is most vulnerable to, our own ego and arrogance and pride. Because of fallen nature, the very last thing that we want to do is to admit our own helplessness and need for a savior and to count all of our good deeds as worthless. That's what makes becoming a Christian so extremely difficult. Only by God's divine enablement do we ever recognize our utter inability to save ourselves. Now, these false teachers were exploiting and capitalizing on this human nature. Like you and me, the Galatians naturally gravitated toward any form of salvation to which they could contribute. They gravitated toward it. For these believers, it just happened to be the rules and regulations of Old Testament Judaism. And Paul clarifies that this is, this is not really another gospel we're talking about here. Because by definition, these other gospels are not really gospels at all. The word gospel means good news. But any form of works-based salvation is not good news. I may think it's good news because I'll get either all or some of the credit for somehow working my way to heaven. But in the end... It's not going to get me to heaven because it's a lie. I like how John Owen describes this. He says, works, works, a man get to heaven by works? I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. I love that image. I began brainstorming and searching for some examples of these of false gospels that have led people astray. And honestly, the, the list is endless. And we could, we could be here for, for hours and hours and hours. But let's just take a, take a look at some of them. Start with some popular world religions. We've got Christian science. You may or may not be familiar with. It teaches that humanity is already, already eternally saved. Sin, evil, sickness, and death are not real. The gospel, or good news, consists of right thinking, which produces healing. It is not the shed blood of Christ on the cross. And, of course, we've got Islam, There is no good news message in Islam. Salvation consists of doing good and hoping that Allah will grant Muslims salvation. It is works-based righteousness. We've got Hinduism. 
Through yoga, meditation, self-improvement, and through multiple reincarnated lives, one can find salvation through union with Brahman or, or their God. We've got Jehovah's Witnesses. The gospel that leads to forgiveness of sins consists of taking in knowledge of God, obeying the laws of God, being associated with God's organization, and loyally advocating his kingdom rule to others. Again, what does this smell like? It smells like human effort, works-based salvation. We've got Latter-day Saints. Mormons are saved by works, even though they have the vocabulary that sounds very Christian. They don't deny Jesus died for our sins, but they tack on all these other things. They're saved by works, including faithfulness to church leaders, Mormon baptism, tithing, ordination, marriage, and sacred temple rituals. And then I want to talk about Roman Catholicism. Initial justification is by means of baptism, as referenced in their own documents. Salvation is attained by cooperating with grace through faith, good works, and participation in the seven sacraments. Grace is merited by good works. Now, I've had many, many dear Catholic friends throughout my life who were not aware of, you know, many of the specific doctrines that their own church believes and teaches. I think that's common. And I don't want to just pick on Catholics because many Protestant churches do not preach the gospel either and their members are not saved. But since Catholics make up, I think, about 23% of all professing Christians in this country, I think it's important for us to understand what their churches actually believe, especially regarding how a person is saved. Okay? So goes on to say, through its seven sacraments, grace is imparted to people, transforming their character so that they may work to merit eternal life. The church affirms that for believers, the sacraments are necessary for salvation. It's, and it's, again, it's documented. The seven sacraments are baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance and reconciliation, anointing the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. Now, the... Roman Catholic Church has historically taught that justification is by faith, okay? The Latin word for faith is fide, but it is not by faith alone or sola fide, as Protestantism teaches. Now, the Catholic Council of Trent in the mid-1500s said that God does not justify anyone until a person is righteous in their behavior. Now, now, catch this. In other words, justification of a person depends upon the sanctification of that person. In contrast, the Reformers said that justification is based on the righteousness of Jesus being imputed or credited to people who are not perfectly righteous in their practice and behavior. And that the only ground by which a person can be saved is Jesus' righteousness, which is credited to us who believe. Make sense? Because this is incredibly important. One of the reasons the Catholic Church rejected justification by faith alone 
is that they thought it would lead to lawlessness. If Christ's righteousness is credited to us by faith alone, why would anyone be motivated to pursue a daily, practical, holy life? That's, that's a very common reasoning. We could all go there if we thought about it. But the answer, of course, is that after a person is saved by grace, through faith alone, the Holy Spirit comes into that person and begins a lifelong process of conforming them to the image of Christ. So, Catholicism and Protestantism, it's very similar. They both expect people's lives to change. But the key difference is, for Catholics, a changed life is a prerequisite for salvation rather than an evidence of it. Okay? I don't have time to go into all the complicated process by which Catholicism teaches that a person can be saved. It's, it's grown over time, but here's a flow chart that depicts it. Okay? This is real. And you can, you can follow it all the way around through all kinds of permutations and circumstances. Okay, that, that is what it boils down to. That's a flow chart. Now, I'd like you to compare that with Acts 16 where a jailer asks Paul and Silas a question. He says, what must I do to be saved? That's the question we're talking about. What must I do to be saved? How did they answer him? Did they hand him a, a complicated flow chart that looked like this? Let's read what they said in Acts 16.31. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be you and your household. This compared to this. This or this. This or this. Now, I believe God can save people in just about any Christian denomination and even out of flat-out cults. But the clarity, the clarity of the gospel that is taught in each of them can vary greatly. So, what do the vast majority of these gospels, false gospels, have in common? As we, as we have said, they employ works as a means by which we're saved. Why do you think that common denominator exists? Could it be that our enemy knows that, you know, if he can get us to trust in Christ plus our good works or, or anything else, he can disqualify us from heaven? I think so. Billions of people are caught up in all these false gospels, and we are to love those people. They are not the enemy. Satan is the father of lies. He's the enemy. But it's kind of overwhelming that there are so many false gospels out there. It's kind of like the movie, if you remember, Monsters, Inc., you know, with the thousands of doors into people's homes. In reality, when it comes to salvation, there is only one door. And that door is Jesus. That's why he said in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. There's only one gospel, and it is non-negotiable. The moment you tamper with it or tweak it or alter it, it ceases to be the gospel. 
Martin Luther summed it up really well when he said this. He said, there is no middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There is no alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. Many false gospels acknowledge Jesus' death on the cross as necessary for salvation. The problem is they add in just a pinch or more of human effort. And when I say I'm saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ, it doesn't mean that my faith contributes anything of merit towards saving me. God's grace is kind of like a ray of light shining through a window into a dark room. The light represents the gospel of God's grace, and the window represents my faith. This is why we say we're saved by grace through faith. Notice that the window, it doesn't contribute anything to the light. It is merely a means through which the light can enter. But how do we know which light is true? In his book, Galatians for You, Timothy Keller writes this. He says, since the one true gospel is so crucial and so often and easily reversed, this awakens in us a troubling question. How can we ensure the gospel we believe is actually true? How do we know it's not merely a gospel that we feel is true or are told is true or think is true or sounds to us as true, but is a gospel that is true objectively and therefore can save really and eternally? And here's his answer. Paul lays down in the strongest possible language a plumb line for judging all truth claims, whether external, from teachers, writers, thinkers, preachers, or internal, like feelings, sensations, experience. That standard is the gospel that he and all the other capital A apostles received from Christ and taught, and which is found in this letter, Galatians, and throughout the rest of the Bible. Okay, so read with me again verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it. Now, people change their minds all the time. Preachers change their minds. You know, I've taught things years ago that I've changed my mind about, that I would teach very differently today. What if, you know, Paul somehow changed his mind later in life and came to a different understanding of the gospel that he preached? Would he want us to listen to it? No. <laughs> And that's because his gospel didn't come to him through, you know, reasoning or reflection. It was something that he received directly from God, not just something he arrived at. In Galatians 2, we're going to read that Paul's gospel was confirmed by other people as well, who also received it through special revelation from the risen Christ. You don't mess with that. The word accursed here is the word anathema. It means eternally condemned, devoted to destruction, and damned. 
And to give even more weight to the curse, he repeats it a second time. Now, Paul loved people who believed false gospels because he knew they were merely deceived. But he calls down the most severe curses in the whole Bible upon anyone who is actively teaching false gospels and leading others astray. That's an important distinction. In 1817... Joseph Smith moved with his family to western New York. Supposedly, he heard and saw a series of visions. In the first one, there were two people implied to be God and, 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 his, and the Son who appeared to him in subsequent visions, and an angel named Moroni directed Smith to a buried book of golden plates inscribed with a Judeo-Christian history of an ancient American civilization. And in 1830, Smith published what he said was an English translation of these plates titled The Book of Mormon. And he organized the Church of Christ, calling it a restoration of the early Christian church. What was the result of this one man's angelic visions? Well, there are over 17 million Mormons in more than 160 countries, 178 languages today. I thoroughly believe that Joseph Smith really encountered a supernatural being, but it wasn't an angelic being from heaven. Without a doubt, it was a fallen angel or a demon because its message was in clear contradiction to the eternal gospel once for all delivered to the saints. Similar thing happened to Muhammad. According to Islamic tradition in the year 610 A.D., At the age of 40, while he was in seclusion and contemplation in a cave somewhere up in the mountains, the archangel, supposedly Gabriel, appeared before him, and he received his first revelation from God. Three years later, Muhammad started preaching these revelations publicly. Fast forward 1,400 years, and you have 2 billion, 2 billion Muslims, a quarter of the world, who are ready to die for this satanically inspired message. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is warning the church to beware of false apostles. And in the process, he makes an interesting point regarding Satan. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You know, Satan didn't come to Joseph Smith or Muhammad looking like the Balrog from Lord of the Rings. It's not how he appeared, with fire and fangs and, you know, horns and claws. No, he came looking something like this. He came as a beautiful angel of light. I know, it's, it's all I could find online. <laughs> Sorry. You see, the devil knows that, that nobody's going to listen to a monster. But if you impersonate the archangel Michael, you can get people to believe anything. 2 Peter 2.1. 
Peter says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Peter is referring to all the false prophets and people that plagued the people of Israel in the Old Testament. We read about some of them in our last series, like Balaam. In the same way, Peter says to the church, there will be among you. Now notice the words among you. He's not talking about some new age gurus or prosperity teachers on TV. He's talking about people in the local church, members of local congregations. Warren Wiersbe puts it well. He says this, Satan is the counterfeiter. He has a false gospel preached by false ministers producing false Christians. Satan plants his counterfeits wherever God plants true believers. That's a sobering thought. And as we continue through Galatians, it's going to be increasingly apparent that that the purity and the clarity and the simplicity of the gospel message is paramount. We may disagree on all kinds of other issues, and that's okay. We can work through them and graciously, you know, accommodate a lot of difference of conviction within a local church. But when it comes to the gospel, there is no, it's just non-negotiable. I'd just like to end with this quote by John Stott. He says, To tamper with the gospel is to trouble the church. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers now as then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. Conversely, the only way to be a good churchman is to be a good gospel man. The best way to serve the church is to believe and preach the gospel. Amen? All right, band, you guys can come on back up. We're going to end by sharing communion this morning. Of course, communion is a regular, tangible reminder of the gospel that we profess to believe. And so it's really only for those who have trusted in Christ alone. Sola fide, Christ, faith alone. Only for those who have trusted in for salvation. The bread represents the body of Jesus Christ freely offered up on the cross. And the wine represents his shed blood. As the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sin. You'll find the cups in the front pew, pew ahead of you. If you like gluten-free, please raise your hand right now and someone will get that right to you. Communion it acts as kind of like, uh, you might call it a visible word. Visible word. It's, it's not bringing any new information to us that we wouldn't know from the Bible, but instead, communion preaches to our eyes, our hands, our lips, our mouths, the same gospel, but, but in pictorial form, if you will. I have a four-year-old granddaughter. I love her. And you know, I can tell her, and I do tell her that I love her. And that's great. But then I can also, you know, pick her up and give her a big hug and kiss her on the cheek. 
What does the hug and the kiss add to my verbal words? You know, my words should be enough. Well, they strengthen and confirm the words that I spoke. So too with the Lord's Supper. It is a gift of God's grace, confirming the message of the cross. The Q&A 75 of the Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. It says, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. So I'd like for us just to take a moment to silently consider these symbols of Christ's body and blood. God has clearly told us that he loves us, right? But these symbols are to strengthen and confirm those words. So after a few moments, I'm going to say a prayer, and then we can all take the elements together. So let's just have a moment of quiet. Lord, we confess to you this morning that we are too sinful to contribute to our own salvation. We rest in the fact that we need a complete rescue from you. We believe that we are saved by belief in the work of Jesus plus nothing else. And may we never distort, edit, complicate, or confuse your gospel. It is the only gospel. And it is our only hope for salvation. I pray that we would believe it, we'd live it, we'd preach it, protect it, cling to it, glory in it, and never grow weary of it. It is our life. Thank you, Lord, for your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.